This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Sarah Seidelman. Sarah was a physician living a nature-starved, hectic lifestyle until a walrus entered her life and changed everything. She's trained at the Martha Beck Institute and at Michael Harner's Foundation for Shamanic Studies and is the author of Swimming with Elephants. With Sounds True, Sarah has written a new book called The Book of Beasties, Your A to Z Guide to Illuminating the Wisdom of Spirit Animals, where she invites the reader to explore why certain animals show up in life and what teachings they may be trying to share. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Sarah and I spoke about making midlife career transitions and the role that our connection with what she calls beasties or spirit animals can play in that process. We also talked about her experience with several different beasties, including bears and elephants, and how she believes that everything has a spirit that wants to connect and be known. We talked about beastie synchronicity, how to identify your own core beasties, and the unconditional love that can come from those relationships. And finally, we talked about the power of asking yourself the question, how good are you willing to let your life be? Here's my conversation with Sarah Seidelman. Sarah, every book, I think, has an origin story. And to begin with, could you share with us your sense of the origin story of the Book of Beasties? Yes. Well, uh, really, it was the Beasties that saved me in my own sort of dark night of the soul. Um, Back in 2010, I was uh, working as a practicing physician, uh, specifically as a pathologist in a hospital practice, and feeling just really lost, not engaged in the work I was doing, and wondering what was wrong with me, (laughs) because everybody else seemed to be able to continue on doing their work, and it seemed like I was the only one who was disconnected. So I took a sabbatical from work just thinking I'm going to explore some things that had been intriguing me and thinking maybe I'll find some clarity and and kind of get my mojo back for this work. Um, But instead what happened is I ended up spending a lot of time out in nature. uh, And during that time I stumbled into this old ancient concept that uh, the animals that cross our path, the wild animals in particular, may have messages for us, helpful messages. So if we're feeling lost or confused, you know, if we would pay attention to those, it might help us. And being a rational person and a, you know, science sort of nerd from the get-go, this seemed like a most wacky and wild idea to me. Um, 
But it was also kind of encouraging because at the time I really didn't have any other ideas. I was feeling really lost at sea. And as I started to play with this idea, you know, could animals have messages for me? And if they did, what were they? And, you know, what was going to, you know, were they going to be helpful? And as I experimented, I found out they really helped me. Um, And eventually that led to a podcast, you know, sharing it with many more people and eventually having this longing to invite others who maybe weren't familiar with this idea um, to discover this for themselves so that they too could find kind of the beauty and empowerment and, and kind of buoyancy that I found through this path. You wrote a previous book, Sarah, called Swimming with Elephants, My Unexpected Pilgrimage from Physician to Healer. What happened for you with the elephants that was part (laughs) of this transition for you? Yeah, well, the first beastie I met was a mother bear, which was sort of the beginning of this um, kind of finding my way um, from that work, you know, from being a practicing physician to the work I do now. And just as I was feeling quite a bit better and a little bit stronger, having made this connection with this bear and learning a lot of things about myself and uh, through the bear, (laughs) I was needing a little extra dose of courage because it was time for me, my sabbatical time was up, my six months was up, and it was, you know, on schedule for me to go back to work. But I had this really strong feeling that I wasn't supposed to go back. And so right around then, um, this amazing elephant, Alice, showed up for me in one of my shamanic journeys. Um, And for those who aren't familiar with what a shamanic journey is, it's really um, sort of like a deeper meditation that is uh, undertaken typically or most commonly by listening to drumming music, but anyway, a, a drum beat. But in any case, this this wonderful elephant who was very, uh, the spirit elephant, who was very funny and very loving and very buoyant <laughs> and really um, came to encourage me to uh, continue to explore. And she kind of gave me the courage to embrace this really strange new path that I was on and the courage to tell, you know, the people that my practice partners at work, you know, I just don't think I can come back, at least not on a full or part-time basis. You know, I I went part-time or I was kind of like a fill-in for a while, but she gave me that courage I needed because I think as, as... as anyone knows who's been on a journey of uh, major change, it takes a lot of uh, courage to face uh, the things that scare us, you know. Okay, let's take this a little bit piece by piece. You started with a bear during your sabbatical that helped you move forward. What happened with the bear? Did you meet an actual bear in the wilderness? Or was this, again, a, a bear that happened through this shamanic meditation experience? Yeah. Well, what happened was, um, as I started exploring this idea of animal spirits in general and started sharing it with other people, you know, I started learning that many people have one particular wild animal or beastie that is very special to them. That's sort of like a lifetime beastie, or some people call it a power animal. I began calling it a core beastie, this idea that's sort of like the core of who you are. And I couldn't figure mine out for the life of me. I mean, I wrote lists. Um, I was meeting all sorts of people who were just easily stumbling into who their 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 beast, their their own core beastie was. <laughs> and I was completely flummoxed. I think because I was so um, caught in my head, caught up in my head in that intellectual sort of left brain way of thinking. 
So I eventually realized that there was one way that I could find this beastie out that was sort of a non-logical way, and that was to go on a shamanic journey and allow the spirit to show me who it was. <laughs> and so that's what I did. And so I um, listened to a recording by another Sounds True author, Sandra Ingerman, and it was laying on a bed in South Africa, listening on my, you know, my earbuds that this amazing mother bear kind of stepped in and rubbed my back and sort of said, Sarah, you know, where you're going isn't that far and just enjoy the journey. It's, and she sort of showed me off in the distance that where I was going um, could be not so far and it was going to be fun. We rolled down this hill in this sort of in this journey and uh, we're laughing and crying like children, you know, when you roll down a hill and you, you as an adult, if you roll down a hill, you'll get nauseous and throw up. But when you're a kid, you can do that. <laughs> and it was just the most marvelous, reassuring, uh, experience. And I felt really loved. Like I hadn't been, I hadn't experienced that kind of, uh, full love ever. I have loving parents and loving family, but it was kind of that unlimited, yeah, divine kind of love. Now this word beastie, that's an unusual <laughs> word. I, I think people are maybe more familiar with the idea of power animals or spirit animals. Where did you come up with this word beasties? Yeah, well, I started realizing there were so many different creatures that could get your attention. You know, it could be a ladybug or a dragonfly or, you know, something strange under the ocean or it could be something mythical like a griffin or a unicorn um, or maybe something you've never seen before even um, that really anything was possible in these realms. So I wanted to I wanted to have a fun and buoyant term, too, that invited people to. Um, feel playful with this. Because one thing I noticed as I was kind of beginning to explore the path of shamanism and spirit animals in general is that a lot of what was written was very, or felt for me, like heavy or very serious. And what I discovered was not that the spirits can't be serious and, and stern and, 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 you know, uh, very much that way as well. But there was a lot of buoyancy and lightness in this work. And that, that was really what I craved and needed so much during that dark period. And that's kind of why I created the, you know, you started using beastie because I felt like it invited people to, to play with it, you know, especially if they were feeling scared. Okay. Let's address right at the front here, the person who's listening, who might be a bit skeptical and what I'm imagining going through their mind is something like, yeah, it's great for people to use their imagination and roll around with the strengths of various beasties, various animals, because it taps them into various capacities that are latent within them that need to come forward. Let's just not concretize this as in there's an actual core beastie that is associated with my entire life and it wants to find me. This is just an imaginary process that helps people tap into their capacities. Good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's okay too. Um, I always tell people it's wonderful to come to this work skeptical or come to these ideas being skeptical. It's totally fantastic. And of course I was massively skeptical. I mean, I was a pathologist. I was like, you know, if you can't show it to me, prove it to me, or if it's not written up in a you know research document or in the New England Journal of Medicine, I, I really am not that interested. I'm very, you know, <laughs> I poo-poo it. Um, but so bring your skeptical mind to it, but then see what happens. So I often invite people to kind of 
you know, go out in nature and see what animals, what creatures are showing up for them and play with this idea, you know, with some of the simple concepts, you know, what's going on with you, what's happening in your life and what might this, this one that particularly showed up or jumped out to you today, um, what might it with its postures and the way it's being, what might it be trying to point you towards, uh, or show you? And just see, like, how do you feel after you maybe receive the message? Or how do you feel after you read part of, you know, one of the things that was, you know, in a book about this um, particular beastie? You know, if you feel better, um, fantastic. Then the really the proof is the only proof that we're ever going to get is sort of accumulated over time. <laughs> you know, like, faith is not granted in these um it's not as if I stumbled into this path and was like, I'm going to choose to believe that spirit animals are going to help me. Um, it was that little by little as I worked with these ideas and began to build a relationship and, and experiment with it, much like a scientist, I discovered that there was a helpfulness, a usefulness, a power to this work that I cannot really prove to anyone else, but I know it to be true for myself. Okay, and now let's address that person who says, you know, I've always been curious what my core beasties might be, but I just don't know. You know, I kind of like this particular animal, but I like that particular animal. I don't know. It's a part of maybe my self-image or my ego. It makes me feel good to think that I would be associated with it, but I don't really know if it's a core beastie for me or not. Yeah, well, I think the traditional teaching on that is that, um, you know, that we don't really choose the, the beasties, the, the, these spirits kind of choose us. Um, and I would encourage a person like that who's really not sure, not clear on who theirs is, whether they're in control of it or not, is to, well, one way would be to invite them to go on a shamanic journey and see, um, see what happens for them. That would probably be my number one suggestion. The other suggestion might be to, you know, signal to the universe that you would like some clarity on that. You would like to know you would like to really know and you so set that intention to request a clear message. Um, you know, if you pray to pray for a clear uh, understanding of who your spirit animal is, you know, who your core beastie is so that you can really begin to work with them and honor them and, and kind of own it. Uh, because until we're sure, until we get that inner confirmation, um, you know, it can just feel like one more thing in our life that we're not sure about. <laughs> Now, in the beginning of the Book of Beasties, you reference a walrus who played an important role, actually, in your life, and it sounds like in the creation of the Book of Beasties as well. Tell us a little bit about the walrus and the messages you received from the walrus. Yes, well... That summer when I went on my sabbatical and left the hospital and my medical practice behind for a little bit, um, I had some free time and I happened to be stumbling around in some stores down in our little um, downtown. And in this one store that I walked into, there was this huge taxidermied walrus head up on the, up on the wall. And I remember just thinking, wow, that's unusual. I've never seen anything quite like that. And just being really drawn to it. Um, and so much so that I started wondering, like, am I supposed, it was just a strange connection. Like I thought, am I supposed to buy this thing? Like what is going on with me? I had some interior design background, so I knew it was something, you know, unusual. And at that time I really wasn't, um, 
I wasn't even really probably the image of the tax. Well, anyway, I won't go into too many details, but I was really felt drawn to it. And I went actually went back to the store just being curious. Um, I finally called the owner and we got into a conversation about it and he turned out to be native American and just told me how, you know, it, it felt something powerful to him and he had wanted to keep it as home, but his wife didn't want it around. <laughs> so it didn't fit in with their design. Well, I started thinking, well, maybe as I had been learning this concept of spirit animals, maybe this, this walrus has a message for me. And so I began with this simple concept with which those of you who are listening can play with this too. Okay. So asking myself what's been going on with myself the last 24 hours. And I was feeling just this, you know, utter confusion about wanting to maybe go into writing or coaching or some other kind of, um, therapeutic work other than what I was doing, but feeling a lot of fear about that. Uh, money, fear of money, like how are we going to put the kids through college, all these fears, you know, how am I going to replace my income, that kind of stuff. And so then noticing and learning a little bit more about the walrus. So I went on YouTube and just looked at a few videos um, of walruses. <laughs> and what I noticed, I watched this marvelous video of all these walruses that had accumulated on a beach and they were all lying there just completely surrendered and, you know, to the beach and just enjoying themselves. Um, and I realized, wow, like walruses are just sort of being, they're accepting their walrusness. They're not like sweating it out or, you know, trying to be something they're not. They're just being walruses. And the other thing that I learned about them is that walruses are sort of apex predators in the sense that they have no they have little to no competition, but the only beastie that will mess around or, you know, tangle with a walrus is a polar bear. <clears throat> and the message that I got from that seemed to be that if I could just be myself, who I am, you know, if I could just embrace my, my, my serenness, my walrusnessness, <laughs> that I would have no competition. Like if I could just somehow managed to be myself that there, I would be able to create a career for myself or create books or things that other people couldn't create because I would just do it from my own self. Uh, so those were the powerful messages that the walrus gave to me, um, and many more, but that's just an example that the, the spirit animals don't necessarily have to come to you in a dream or you don't necessarily have to encounter them in the wild. Sometimes they show up in the strangest ways. <laughs> now, just to ask you a question, do you believe that the spirit of the walrus came to you to help you? Or do you believe this was some part of your own evolution that needed to happen and manifested through this encounter in your imagination? Wow, that is a deep question, Tammy. Um, I think I think it can be. I think that I'm not. I think some. The more I do this work, I think that I don't understand what is exactly always going on. Um, I do believe that uh, the spirit, that everything has a spirit and that we can, you know, everything that we see that we call ordinary, like we might call a taxidermied walrus ordinary, right? But that there is some aspect of that that is spirited and alive and that the universe or the creation or the, you know, maybe what we might call God, depending on, you know, what terminology you use, can speak through that, you know, in its own unique voice to us. And I believe that I am part of that, that you are part of that. So 
And I guess the way that I imagine it is almost like the creation reaching up to touch itself and communicate back to itself (laughs) through us, you know, so this connection of the walrus connecting to me, um, if that makes sense, I guess that does. That's that's beautiful. (laughs) That's beautiful. Now you also wrote a book called born to freak a salty primer (laughs) for irrepressible humans. And in hearing you talk about the walrus and you fully coming into your Sarah-ness and walrus-ness-ness, I thought of that title, (laughs) born to freak. And I want to address that person, Sarah, who might be listening, who perhaps knows that they're on the edge of some kind of transition in their life. Maybe it's a career transition or a geography transition or a relationship transition, something like that. But they feel afraid. They're in that place that you were in before you stepped forward. What would be your suggestions for them to have the courage to move forward? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is that you are here. um, You are here to share something really special and unique, you know, that only you can share with the world. And when you're, when you find the capacity to do that thing or that combination of unique things, (laughs) you will be bringing balance or restoring balance to the world when you do that. Uh, And also encouraging others who are feeling lost (laughs) Um, so that's the first thing I would say. The second thing is, um, I would invite them. I would invite you to make a little space in your life to explore the things that really, really light you up. You know, whether that's, you know, maybe you're feeling really drawn to a yoga teacher training, or maybe you're feeling really drawn to roomy poetry or, really drawn to learning about herbs or something unusual that you're fearful that people are going to judge you or your mother is not going to like it or, or your, you know, your spouse is going to leave you or you're going to lose your job somehow if you, if you dabble in this or if people find out what you're really like. <laughs> um, and find a safe way to do it. You know, maybe it's checking books out from the library, you know, under a pseudonym, getting a, like a secret library card. I don't know. But somehow to allow yourself to play in play with in some small safe way. Um, and it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. Um, I'm reminded like most of these things that are enchanting us are free, like going on the woods, (laughs) that might be a great place to spend more time in. Um, because when we make more room, um, for what it is we're yearning for, a lot of magic can start to happen. You know, we don't need to let in, like, we don't need to quit our job. We don't like to immediately leave our spouse or like move to Las Vegas or, you know, or move to Hawaii. Like it can happen right where you are. You know, Sarah, one of the things you write about is something that you call your feel good vocation. (laughs) And in your work, helping people find their feel good vocation. And I noticed I had a mixed reaction to that, that I want to pass by you. On the one hand, I thought, yes, sure. People should be involved in work that is meaningful and helps them feel good. Then I also thought about how part of my work makes me feel good. And sometimes it's a lot of just plain grit and hard work, and I don't feel that good at it. I mean, it kind of comes with the territory. And I thought, God, I wonder if people could get misled, you know, go towards your feel good vocation. But what about when it doesn't feel good? Right. 
Yeah, well, what I find is my the people that I sort of draw are drawn to me, and I think um, myself included. Now, I guess I'm drawn to myself. <laughs> That's good. We tend to be uh, overworkers, like really hard workers, really with a huge work ethic. So typically that is the people that I write to, typically that is not their issue, like not being willing to have the grit, not being willing to, you know, put in the, the extra hours and that kind of thing. But I agree, it could be confusing. Um, but what I sort of, yes, we want things to feel good and that when, whatever it is we're doing, whether it's like if our field my one part of my feel good vocation is writing. So writing when I'm writing, I mean, often once I'm writing, it's so delicious and it's, um, it's moving, it's emotional. It's, it's a lot of things like I'll often have tears running down my face and just thinking of all kinds of beautiful memories and, um, but then there are aspects of writing that are really hard, like getting myself to sit down when I'm really afraid to write, or I'm afraid what I'm writing isn't good enough. Um, so what that feel good though is, is still connecting with is the fact that if I don't write, that feels terrible. <laughs> so it's kind of learning to train ourselves to, um, to be in integrity with ourselves, I think is the deeper kind of aspect of that feel good work or that feel good vocation. Um, so being willing to face the fear, but yes, I agree that, um, I agree that just because when you're doing your feel good vocation, it doesn't mean that there won't be moments of fear, that there won't be moments that are like, wow, this is much harder than I thought it was going to be, or um, things don't seem to be going very well. Um, but a clue that um, that you are doing your feel good vocation is that um, when you do that work, when you do that, when you are completed, you know, a day's work, there is a deep, you know, down in your bones satisfaction that you're headed somewhere good, that what you've done is um, is leading you to something, that you are staying with yourself, you're, you know, you're extending this love and compassion towards yourself to continue on no matter how dark it gets, no matter how challenging the night may be. <laughs> You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. That's very helpful. Now, let's say somebody wants to move in a different career direction, and they have a sense that a beastie might be helpful to them, but they're not familiar with shamanic journeying or necessarily called to that form. How might they be able to find a beastie to help them with having a feel-good career of integrity? Okay. So one of the really simplest ways to to explore this is just to ask yourself, has there been a wild creature, you know, that has always, um, you've always felt drawn to your whole life? 
Um, and when some people ask themselves ask themselves that question, um, you know, the answer bubbles up really quite easily and quite simply. And that may be, you know, your beastie. Another thing is sometimes we get nicknamed, you know, as kids by our beastie's name, you know, um, you know, they for for different reasons. So that is another place to look. Um, you can also just sort of act like an anthropologist and go explore your home uh, and sort of see, is there artwork in here that has particular beasties? You know, I remember doing, we had a, a podcast for a long time called Squirrel Radio where people would call in and there was a person who called in and they were just like, I really have no idea who my core beastie is and I'm just so confused. And I said, well, sometimes, you know, just take a look around the house because sometimes you've been like, you know, unbeknownst to you, you've been collecting, you know, uh, I don't know, foxes or something. Um, and this person uh, was looking around their house and then suddenly said, oh my gosh. And, and, and it just got really quiet for a while. And he said, over my fireplace, there's this enormous painting of a wolf that I bought years ago. And then, you know, there was emotion behind his voice. And sometimes it's just, it's been, it's sort of hiding in plain sight. Um, so I think that can also be a way um, that we discover it. Also, other ways is we've had a really radically amazing encounter with a particular beastie. Maybe we've had a beastie repeatedly coming to us in our dreams, even attacking us in our dreams, which could be quite feel unpleasant, maybe or feel scary, but maybe feels important to you somehow, that may be a clue. Or maybe you, uh, you know, in some shamanic cultures, if you've been attacked by a particular wild, wild animal and you survive the attack, that might be a clue to people that this was the medicine, this was the spirit of an animal who wanted to walk with you and work with you. Now, you mentioned, Sarah, your radio show, Squirrel Radio, where you talked about beastie experiences with call-in guests. Why did you call it Squirrel Radio? <laughs> well, it was right about the time that movie Up uh, came out from Pixar, and a lot of us who are born to freak or have been diagnosed with ADHD or ADD um, you know, there's that there's that marvelous uh, golden retriever character who's always like squirrel. <laughs> like the minute they would like, um, you know, there would be something distracting, a tennis ball, a squirrel, so, you know, and he would be off, you know, off on some adventure. And I think that was our loving way at saying, yes, we do get distracted by amazing things that excite us. And it's OK if you're like that too. come join us and have some fun, because I find that a lot of um people who are sort of uh, hypersensitive, uh, maybe maybe not hypersensitive, just highly sensitive, beautiful, amazing individuals have had that sort of maybe squashed out of them or told that their, their, their diffuse awareness of the world is not welcome in school, for example, <laughs> or in different environments. But it's that same sort of diffuse, open-minded awareness that maybe causes you to get distracted during, a, you know, maybe a lecture you don't find so interesting that can also lead you to discover amazing things about life. So, Okay, okay. So this is interesting. You mentioned being diagnosed or other people who have been diagnosed with adult ADHD. So that's part of your life. And how did you come to that? And how did you come to see the positive side? And I guess I'm curious to know what the challenges are as well. 
Yeah. Well, so on that radical sabbatical from medicine, um, you know, I started exploring a few things like why, why is it that I feel so different from everybody else? I was trying to figure it out and ended up reading um, some of the classic books on ADHD. And as I read them, I was like, uh, like driven to distraction. Uh, I was like, wow, uh, that's really strange because I'm recognizing myself on almost every page of this book. And suddenly I had this understanding of why for so long I had really felt like I didn't fit in or, you know, had been shamed for being, um, you know, too loud, too silly, too ridiculous. I remember being on a, I was on a rotation as a resident at the University of Minnesota in the bone marrow transplant um, lab in their clinic. And uh, I remember somebody, the, the professor there was very serious and he one time called in the chief resident to tell him his concern that he thought I was drunk, that I was showing up drunk for work because I was so irrepressible and, and seemed to be having so much fun. And it was a very somber place. Uh, we weren't seeing patients there. We were just studying bone marrows under the microscope. But I remember being so confused by like, why do people think I'm drunk? But it was just that I was, you know, kind of feeling delightful and having fun and laughing a lot. And I don't know. Anyway, this book just made me realize, wow. So eventually it led to, I got evaluated and got, went through some testing and was diagnosed with ADHD and in a deeper dive on that. And that's about the same time that Alice, the elephant showed up. Um, I started realizing that these people who have ADHD may also be the same people um, who are the dreamers, you know, the um, maybe have these shamanic proclivities because one of the things about people with um, the daydreamy sort of ADHD, the inattentive type, the kids who look like they're kind of spaced out and staring off at the trees when they're supposed to be staring at the blackboard, they tend to, when you do brain uh, EEG studies of them, they tend to be spending a lot of time in theta brainwave state, which is the same place that a shamanic journeyer is going is 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 in when they're on a shamanic journey. And I started wondering, wow, like maybe all this these these people who are now diagnosing are really these poets and these seers and the healers and the 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 magicians, the 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 beautiful soul fixers, you know, the bone setters. And I started to see it everywhere and everything and realized that, wow, we have to encourage all these people who are kind of being discouraged right now by our culture and our schools in particular, and even maybe job places. Um, we need to encourage them and send a message that they need to, you know, find a way to express this stuff, this irrepressible stuff that wants to come out of them because it's good stuff and it's helping bring balance to the world. So just to understand, Sarah, you were able to become a surgical pathologist and succeed in that career despite yeah. the ADHD. So yes. tell me about that. Yeah. So the thing about ADHD, it's such a terrible name because they talk about attention deficit disorders, talking about the fact that like we lack our ability to focus attention. But the truer description would be that we have an ability to hyper-focus on things we love. And so because I loved pathology for so many years, I was obsessed with it. I mean, I was so into it. And that's how I got to be, you know, eventually very good at it and, you know, to get a wonderful job and get wonderful recommendations and all those things because I was really um, passionate about it. Um, and so 
one of the keys if, if you're a person who has ADHD or you're raising a grandchild or you have children or you yourself are is to when you find what you naturally are drawn to and you love it, um, if you can find a way to work that into your employment situation, you'll be set because you will never um, be bored until maybe like me, I started to come to the edge of where I knew I had discovered everything I wanted to know about pathology and started getting curious about other things. Uh, and that was, I started to be curious about instead of diagnosing disease, which was my job description to identify and diagnose disease, I started being curious about what makes people well. And that curiosity would not leave me. And so that's why eventually it wasn't safe for me to stay in my job because I really, um, I just didn't have it in me to focus on disease anymore. But for years I had loved it. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of seeing this dreamer power, potential buoyancy, the joy really in the ADHD part of you, was there a beastie that specifically helped you with that? Yes. Alice, I think, was the one who really helped me the most with that. Um she just really helped me to, I think, get out of my head and more into my heart. Um, one of the things about ADHD, um, which I guess is a, a curse and a blessing, is that you can really think and hyper-focus very well. Um, and sometimes that can lead you to, mm, maybe we'd say, like, obsess or perseverate on something, like a thought that isn't helpful. That can also happen. So I think she helped to remind me to, you know, disengage when I was thinking all kinds of thoughts that were bringing me down or making me feel scared or, you know, she would remind me to sort of lighten up um, when we would go on shamanic journeys. I remember when I wrote Born to Freak, I put, you know, it's a salty primer as the subtitle says, and there were quite a few swear words in it because one thing I had noticed about myself was that I really quite enjoyed being salty. And a lot of the people that I really deeply love, um, Martha Beck, Elizabeth Gilbert, these women, they were salty women. I mean, maybe not on all the time, but when you got to know them, they had a lot of salt too in their language. But it still scared me to use some of these words. Um, and I remember journeying to Alice and asking her, but but Alice, what, you know, if I put these swear words, you know, is it going to offend my mother? Are people going to think I'm a bad person for putting these in here, you know? And because that's where I was coming from. I was just scared. And she was like, you know, it's just relax. It's, it's the, it's the spirit in which they're set, you know, and just, just, you know, just check in with yourself. And so that allowed me that freedom to be able to put those words in. And I was so glad I did because, you know, readers came forth and were just like, it was such a relief to see these words and realize it was okay to sometimes say them, you know, sometimes they're the holiest words we have. <laughs> um, so yeah. Okay, let's talk a little bit more specifically about the Book of Beasties. It's an A to Z guide to illuminating the wisdom of spirit animals. And that means that you can look up in the book many different types of animals and find all kinds of descriptions. And you've categorized these descriptions to make it particularly useful to somebody who's looking to see the wisdom that might come from this beastie into their life. Can you talk a little bit about what information you decided to include, how you came to that? Yes. 
Well, I wanted to have a lot of different ways for people to access each animal that we profiled. And so at the beginning of each profile, there is sort of an, uh, a more poetic description to kind of help put that person in the scene of really being present with that particular creature, whether it's a unicorn or a dragon or an elephant or a dragonfly, you know, to really put them in that place. So even if they're not in nature right now, to kind of invite them into that space. And then there's sort of a second section, which is the kind of the largest part where um, we talk about, you know, a theme that may, this beastie may be inviting you into exploring your own life. Um, for example, with the elephants, you know, that if elephants showing up in your life, that it may be an invitation for you to be joining sort of the larger family of, you know, seeing yourself in this place uh, in on the earth, um, connected to more, more beings, you know, as part of this larger family, which is more inclusive of, of all beings. Um, and then, um, because what I've realized and I've learned is that, you know, often people are like, okay, I'm really struggling with a work issue, or I'm really struggling with, I'm seeking a partner and I'm just not, you know, my, I'm having struggling with the online dating world or whatever it is that we have these specific areas, or maybe it's an area in health. And so we wrote a little brief section, um, an invitation for you to explore, um, depending on what's going on with you. So if you've got a work related problem with a colleague, you can check in for, you know, to see what the walrus suggestion is, um, to help you kind of find your alignment, find your feel good, a suggestion for you. And there are also some, some different uh, just practices you can do. So maybe you're really drawn to like spiders showing up a ton in your life. Here's a practice you can do to um, go deeper with that and to engage with that. You know, so Sarah, one criticism I've heard, and I'm curious how you'd respond to this, to these dictionary style books, whether it's about dream analysis or in this case, beasties, is people saying, you know, what's really important is the inner associations, not turning to a dictionary of symbolic meaning. And I'm curious what you think about that. Like somebody might have some weird yeah. inner association that's not covered in the dictionary. Right. Well, if you have your own association, I heartily encourage in the book, and I talk about that a lot, how to get your own unique uh, messages from the beasties. And I think that is definitely number one, what, what you must honor and is so important and beautiful. Um, but what I know to be true also is that um, when I first was discovering this path of the spirit animals, the way that I learned was by reading the works of others and reading the words of others and finding out, well, and listening to other people on Squirrel Radio and finding out, well, what did this, how did they receive this message or what did this, this um, spirit of this beastie, how did it inform them? Um, and I, you know, to this day, I use many different things to support myself, you know, uh, using and what I call divination, you know, which is, you know, seeking hidden information to help myself by looking at resources other people have created through writing um, and on a variety of things. So, um, you know, one of my favorite resources uh, is reading um, Osho's tarot cards, for example. Now, tarot is a great example because there's a million different takes on all these different um symbol or these sort of archetypal energies, for example, in the archetypal cards. Um, 
but the way certain people write about them really touches me and informs me. So that's kind of, um, but I definitely give, there's a whole, the first part of the book is all really instructions on how you can begin to receive your own messages. Well, let's talk about something that I think many people have had the experience of. You call it beastie synchronicity, which is, you know, I'm, I'm walking to my car and suddenly there are six geese flying overhead. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about something or other and I immediately see these geese flying overhead and I think there's some kind of message. So I pick up my iPhone and I, you know, symbolic meaning of geese. What about six, the symbolic meaning of six? How do you suggest right. people work with what you call beastie synchronicity? Yeah, well, there's a the really simple method that I kind of briefly outlined earlier, just kind of asking yourself, so you're standing there at your car, the geese are flying over, asking yourself just really quickly, what's going on with me? What's What's kind of on my mind? Maybe it's worry about a meeting you've got coming up, let's just say. These geese are flying overhead. What's the feeling you get from them? You know, maybe uh, I'm just tapping into a memory of my own watching geese fly over. It could be the softness of the air that's coming off their wings because they're flying pretty low and you can almost feel that softness. Um, maybe it's an invitation. So then asking yourself, how do I connect those two? So I might make the connection, oh my gosh, all I need to do is soften, you know, before I step into this meeting, take a few moments in the ladies room or wherever I am, whatever it is, to soften myself before I walk in. When before that I was feeling like going in guns blazing, <laughs> you know, so often they'll just invite you into this shift. So you can just ask yourself. The other thing is, um, you can open up an app and I have an app that I created called what the walrus knows app and you can go and look up geese and just look up, just read through the, the lines there and see if any of them, you know, floats your boat or kind of lifts you up or makes you feel a little more buoyant. And if it does take it, use it, apply it somehow to your life and to that moment, you know, to your approach for the rest of the day. Um, I often get messages from people who are like, oh my gosh, the, the app was so spot on for me today. You have no idea. It's just crazy. So I know that these things, um, from my own experience and from all the feedback I get is sometimes we need that outside input, especially if it's something that maybe we feel really kind of attached to, or we feel really scared about, um, Sometimes um, we need that helping hand from a resource we love and trust, you know. So if you find a resource you know and trust, go with that. And part of why I really um, wanted to create all these things, the app and the book, is that I wanted a resource that felt really good and gentle and loving and buoyant and uplifting um, because that's what I so desperately needed in my in my hour of need. <laughs> and I still need that. So. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting, Sarah, one of the words that you've used several times in this conversation, which you don't hear people use that much, is this word buoyant. That's an interesting word. I wonder, it seems like it has a feeling in it for you. It definitely does. Um, I feel like, um, yeah, as I was saying, often when I get caught up in my head, I will get really weighted down. You know, if I'm trying to solve a solution from a, from simply that intellectual space, um, whereas 
when I use my head and my heart or I use my head and connect with a beastie or the spirits that help me, um, I often find that sweet place, which is lighter, you know, which is ease, which is, um, trust. And that always feels very buoyant to me. <laughs> like you're being lifted up by something, you know, I don't have to carry this burden. I don't have to do it all myself. You know, there's this, this lightness and this sweetness. Now, you know, sometimes when I experience the rational part of me in a conversation like this, I'm like, oh, Tammy, really, you're trying to bring a part of your mind that just doesn't fit here. But I noticed when you talked about unicorns and dragons, <laughs> I was like, okay, so the Book of Beasties doesn't only have beasties that I might meet out in the wild, although maybe I'd meet a dragon or mm -hmm. a unicorn, really? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, the thing about, yeah, in shamanism, which is so wonderful, is that, you know, in our, in our, in shamanism, you know, our imagination is not, does not, is not considered fake or false, you know, in the way that I think in our culture, in parts of our culture, we have said that, you know, imagination is equal to being false or made up or therefore does not, does not exist. Um, but as I've tapped into this, you know, tapped back into this part of me that is connected to everything that is, um, I've realized that the only way, you know, out of a stuck place is to imagine a way forward. You know, the only way we've ever created new solutions is through our imagination the only way great things, you know, great things come from our imagination. Um, and just because we haven't seen it or we haven't experienced it does not mean that it does not exist. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. The note I wanted to end on, Sarah, is a question that you were willing to ask yourself during your radical sabbatical and that you encourage other people to ask themselves that I think is a very powerful question. And that question is, how good are you willing to let it get? How good are you willing to let your life be? Tell me a little bit about that question and how you suggest people work with it in their life. Yeah, that question I came up with um, that summer on the radical sabbatical, I was, you know, I made a prayer to the universe. Boy, I, I really don't feel like I'm supposed to go back to the hospital and do this, you know, go back to that old work, but I don't see a way forward financially with our family to to do this. But if there, if this is what I'm meant to be doing, exploring this path, show me the way. Two weeks later, my husband got a raise that was almost to the dollar amount what my part-time salary at that time was. So basically my lost income completely re replaced and it felt so good in the moment. I couldn't believe it. I was like, what a miracle. This is amazing. Two weeks later, I was back to doubting. Well, maybe this isn't a miracle. Maybe this. <laughs> and what I realized was no matter how good it got, like there was something inside me that wasn't willing to allow myself <laughs> to, to allow these miracles to happen, to allow the goodness to flow. And so I started asking myself, like, could you, could you raise, you know, I'd self-imposed a glass ceiling on myself. Could you just allow that? Could you take that off? And so if you're ever facing, you know, a difficult uh, question or you're like, uh, feeling stuck, 
about something is just to ask yourself and do this with friends because Lord knows we all need to be reminded of this. Like how good are you willing to let it get? How much good, how much love, how much abundance, how much opportunity, how much um, amazingness would you be willing to let flow in your life or would you let in? Um, because we are often <laughs> the, the, the gatekeepers for that. I discovered. So, yeah, yeah. I, I want to talk about that a little bit more. W what do you think keeps people from letting, uh, sometimes I've heard this referred to as our set point for happiness. Mm -hmm. What do you think in your experience of working with people, coaching people, keeps people from letting themselves get a whole lot happier? You know, a really common one, which surprised always surprised me, but that I'm reminded is that uh, we worry that somehow if if our life gets really good or we let our life get really good, somehow someone we love or it will be bad somehow for somebody else, somebody we care about. So like if I find work I love and quit my job and finding something meaningful, somehow somebody's going to suffer. Like that's going to harm my husband somehow, or we're, you know, something bad's going to happen if we, you know, sort of the shoe's going to drop or alternatively, we just feel that we don't deserve it. You know, maybe that's not what life is about. Maybe we're here to be punished or maybe somehow we're a bad person because we got that message in childhood. You know, we were scolded for, I don't know, you know, being too big for our britches or, or not being kind enough to a sibling or something like that. And so somehow deep down, we feel that we're not worthy of all the love and the adoration and the, and the, the beauty and the, the abundance that wants to come to us. So it, I think those are some of the biggest, you know, misconceptions, but ultimately that we don't believe we're, yeah, we're somehow worthy or something terrible is going to happen if we allow that in. You know, it was interesting when you were talking about your meeting internally with the bear, and you were saying it was the most loved you'd ever felt. I thought that was interesting that that came from an inner meeting with a spirit animal more so than your husband, your kids, your parents. And, you know, clearly you have a, a family life that, at least from the outside, seems like it's filled with a lot of love, but it was yeah. this connection with an inner beastie that <laughs> helped you have so much more love and joy in your life. And just as a note to end on this idea that when we discover our relationship with beasties, that this could be a big factor in helping us have more joy and feel goodness in our life. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you can begin to just be curious, who might that beastie be? Um, or maybe dare to take a shamanic journey and discover them. Um, a lot of amazing things can come from that place because these, these core beasties, they're here to empower us and, and offer us all that love and compassion that not that our human families can't do that and our dearest friends and they do, but, um, being human, you know, we, we, we also have limiting beliefs about each other or we have grudges or <laughs> fears about each other too. And so whereas the spirits have unlimited, uh, they kind of believe in us in an unlimited way, uh, which is pretty darn encouraging. <laughs> I've been speaking with Sarah Seidelman. She's the author of the new book, The Book of Beasties. 
your A to Z guide to the illuminating wisdom of spirit animals. She's also authored the book Swimming with Elephants, My Unexpected Pilgrimage from Physician to Healer, and a book called Born to Freak, a salty primer for irrepressible humans. Sarah, thank you so much for bringing the wisdom of beasties to Insights at the Edge. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. It was a joy. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey, one buoyant journey. Thank you so much, everyone.